Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Anna Carter Florence, Associate Minister at the Church, moderator of today's forum, and our guest is Nina Totenberg, National Public Radio's award-winning legal affairs correspondent. Ms. Totenberg's voice is well known to public radio listeners as her reports air regularly on NPR's news magazines, including All Things Considered, Morning Edition, and Weekend Update, and on NBC news programs. Her coverage of the Supreme Court and of legal affairs in general has won widespread recognition, and she has been the recipient of some of journalism's most prestigious awards. Ms. Totenberg's title for today's forum is Perspectives on the Supreme Court. Ms. Totenberg, it is a great honor to have you with us today, and we look forward to what you have to tell us. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here, and very particularly happy at the beautiful day that we have for this occasion. As I flew in this morning, I thought, my goodness, what a wonderful day to be in Minneapolis. Um, before I get to the perspectives on the Supreme Court, I thought I should give you a perspective or two on the uh, Clinton administration. And perhaps the uh, best perspective I know uh, comes from a story I heard recently about Bill and Hillary Clinton driving down the street in Washington one day, and the first lady turned to the president and she said, see that guy pumping gas over there? She said, he moved here from Illinois. I used to date that guy when I was in high school. And the president said to his wife, hmm, you used to date him? She said, yeah, I did. He said, just think about that. He says, if you'd married him, you'd be married to a guy who pumps gas. And she said to him, no, Bill, if I'd married him, I'd be married to the President of the United States. <laughs> well, now on to more serious matters. Perspectives on the Supreme Court. In answer to the question you're all asking, I don't know. <laughs> If I knew who he was going to pick, I'd put it on the radio. I know less than I knew for 12 years of Republican administrations whenever there was a vacancy. And I think the reason that I know le less and all my colleagues know less is that this decision is being made principally by the President of the United States, I presume in consultation with the First Lady. Uh, <clears throat> Presidents of recent memory have by and large picked their nominees by having their principal staff people give them a final list of two or three people and summarize the pros and cons and then they maybe interview one or two of them and then pick. That is not true of this president. He is a former attorney general of his state. He taught constitutional law before he ran for public office. Uh, both he and his wife are lawyers. They fancy themselves somewhat students of the Constitution and of the Supreme Court, and um, he very much is engaged himself in picking who this nominee will be. And there seems to be little doubt in anyone's mind who is close to this president whom he wanted to pick when he became president. He said during the campaign, we of course didn't take him at his word, but it was true. He never had any intention of naming anybody except Mario Cuomo to the Supreme Court. And, oh, about a month after Byron White uh, announced that he would be retiring at the end of this term, the president made the tentative decision formally to name Mario Cuomo to the Supreme Court, and he called the governor of New York. Uh, what he wanted him to do was to fill out some forms so that they could begin the screening process and he was planning to tell the governor that um, he would not be compared to anyone else, that they just needed to get the process going, and would he help them set it in motion. So 
President placed the call to Albany and was unable to get through to the governor of New York. <laughs> and he did not hear back from the governor of New York for a day and a half. And when the governor of New York finally returned the president's telephone call, he actually asked Mr. Clinton to believe that he had not gotten the message because he'd instructed his secretary not to disturb him because he was in important budget negotiations. Now, if you believe that there is any secretary in the entire United States of America <laughs> who is stupid enough not to tell her boss that the president of the United States of America has just called him, then I have some diamonds in the car I'd like to sell you. But in any event, at that, at that time, uh, Governor Cuomo uh, told the president that he did not want to be considered for the Supreme Court vacancy. Um, there have been a number of theories as to why. I think I take him at his word that he didn't think he really liked the job, that he is too much of a people person. And if you want to be really Machiavellian about it, that he thinks perhaps if Clinton falters, maybe he'll run for president after all. Um, but that left the president in something of a quandary. He hadn't really, I think, anticipated that Governor Cuomo would say no. And the president very much wants to name somebody, at least initially did, want to name somebody who was, as they say at the White House, a wow candidate somebody who would make the rest of us say, wow. Certainly Mario Cuomo would have done that. I would have paid a lot of money to go to those confirmation hearings. <laughs> and Mr. Clinton wanted somebody who had a different background than recent nominees to the Supreme Court, somebody with a background in public life. And if I can diverge here for the moment from my uh, subject of talking about who he'll pick, uh, let me point out to you that the last member of the Supreme Court who had contributed to our national life in any significant way other than being a judge was Thurgood Marshall. And if you compare this court to the Warren Court, not in terms of ideology, but in terms of the background of the justices, it's, a, it's an instructive exercise. There was Chief Justice Earl Warren, who'd been an extremely popular governor of California, He'd been Attorney General of the state. He'd run for Vice President of the United States with Tom Dewey. There was uh, Hugo Black, who was probably the leading New Deal senator of his era. There was William O. Douglas, who had been the architect of the nation's securities laws. There was Robert Jackson, who'd been Solicitor General, Attorney General, Chief Prosecutor at Nuremberg. Uh, there was Felix Frankfurter, the leading academic of his day. There was uh, John Harlan, probably the leading Wall one of the leading Wall Street lions of his day, and on and on. Um, if you compare that to the current court, you will see that the highest office ever held by any sitting member of the United States Supreme Court, other than being a judge, was held by Justice Byron White, who is now retiring, who served as Deputy Attorney General in the Kennedy administration. And if you think that any institution of government uh, does well with some diversity of experience, and I think this president clearly believes that, then one might want to sort of diversify the public policy backgrounds of the people who sit on the court. And so this president, I think, has been very interested in trying to find somebody with some genuine elected public policy experience. Uh, there was a period of time when they were very assiduously looking at judges, state court judges, uh, particularly female judges. Um, but I have the sense that that, is, that interest is fading. And at the moment, what's up seems to be the desire for a public person, a person with real life experience, and if that person turns out to be a white guy, so be it. Um, I also have the sense, and this is very much a this week thing. Two weeks ago, I would have said to you that 
if pressed that the leading contender for the job was a judge on the state Supreme Court of Wisconsin, Shirley Abrahamson, who's probably the uh, best known woman state court judge in the country, known at least for her scholarship and her liberalism. Um, but that seems to, again, have faded. And this week, uh, the interest seems to be in not having a fight with the Senate of any kind at all, having somebody that, we, that everybody sort of drops in their tracks and says, oh, this is an uncontroversial person. And as one White House aide said to me, so we want, we want you to write a story on the day he's named and on the day he's confirmed, <laughs> and nothing in between. Um, and that would lead one to conclude that it would be somebody relatively conservative uh, on the Democratic spectrum, at least, um, for those of you familiar with the Senate Judiciary Committee, perhaps somebody Howell Heflin-esque. <laughs> um, anyway, that's sort of the lay of the land at the moment, vis-a-vis -vis the Supreme Court choices. Uh, whoever this person is, he or she, will make a difference on this court. This is a court that is very conservative. Right now there are seven clearly conservative votes, consistently conservative votes, with some occasional aberrations. Um, but in almost all the five to four cases, the fifth vote has been Byron White on the conservative side, and he is leaving. So if Byron White is replaced by a more liberal vote, and he almost certainly will be replaced by a more liberal vote, to some degree at least, there will be some cases that swing the other way. Typically, for example, one of the issues that is likely to come before the court is whether 24-hour waiting periods in specific cases, in, in specific states, um, work out to be an undue burden on women seeking an abortion. Uh, to put this in the local perspective, as I recall, if things haven't changed in Minnesota since the last time I was here covering an abortion case, um, there are abortion clinics in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and there is an abortion clinic in Duluth and almost nothing in between. And so presumably there might at some point, if there's a 24-hour waiting period imposed here, be an attempt to invalidate it on the grounds that the distances that rural people have to go, have to travel are so far that um, it would be very difficult to work out that 24-hour waiting period. Well, that is almost certain to be a five to four vote and the way this justice votes will be determinative. Um, still, as I said, this is an overwhelmingly conservative court. There is no left left. Uh, there is not a single member of this court who is anywhere near as liberal as any member of the Warren Court majority. The two so-called liberals, Harry Blackman from Minnesota, uh, nominated by President Nixon, and John Paul Stevens, nominated by President Ford, were both considered sort of centrist, Republican, moderately conservative votes in their time. But the center of the court has moved so significantly to the right that they are now the left. Um, and so I'd, I would not expect this court to suddenly turn into a liberal court, certainly not in my lifetime, in all likelihood, my lifetime covering the court, because um, most of the conservatives are in their 50s. Um, Presidents Bush and Reagan were very careful about naming relatively young people to the Supreme Court. Now, we hear a good deal about the so-called center of the court, which, as I've indicated, the center of the court is now considerably to the right. But it is the center of the court. Um, and that would be, normally, uh, Justices O'Connor, uh, Kennedy, and Souter. And on the far right of the court would be the Chief Justice William Rehnquist, Justices Scalia, and Thomas. Now, these are all conservative justices. What's the difference? The difference isn't just the outcome, that in any given case, uh, a justice is so-called pro-life or pro-choice or pro-row or anti-row. Far from it. These six individuals, the three conservatives and the three 
center-right justices, represent entirely different approaches to the law and to analyzing the law. And the best way I know how to describe this is to imagine for a moment that the law is a brick wall and that cases over the years are built up brick by brick by brick. Um, and that the, this brick wall is a boundary, a demarcation in our legal life, our national life, of what is permissible and what is not permissible, and how you do things. Well, the so-called moderate conservatives believe that the value of that wall is partly just that it's there, that it has been built up over time, that that's what the law is, is building up these kinds of walls of demarcation, that that's the way you construct an edifice that's worth having, and that you should never just knock it down willy-nilly, that if you're going to change the wall, what you ought to do is remove part of a brick here or part of a brick there or at most a brick here and a brick there, but not do any major surgery because the wall is worth something in itself. And you saw that in the abortion decision, the Casey decision of, of uh, last term, where those three justices said the public has relied on this decision for almost two decades. It's been there. It's, we've, we've upheld it several times. The fact that it's there is a good reason to keep it being there. On the other side of conservative philosophy is the Scalia-Thomas-Rehnquist side is the notion that the wall is built on a faulty foundation. And if an entire area of cases is built on a faulty foundation, the wall is eventually going to crumble of its own weight and you might as well knock it down with a Mack truck the first chance you get because it's not worth having it there. These are two entirely different philosophies. They are not partisan. They are not even liberal or conservative. If we had had uh, 50 years or 40 years of conservative domination of the Supreme Court, and we now had seven justices who were liberal, we would see the same differences between justices who said, look, what we've done for the last 50 years is disgusting, let's get rid of it, it's no good, and those who say, we've got to work with what we've got, we can't just tear it apart. Um, these are genuine philosophical differences, and they are being fought out uh, on the terrain of the Supreme Court by justices who believe very passionately in their views. Um, Justice O'Connor is, the, of course, the only woman on the court. She is very much of a feminist um, and has contributed significantly to uh, the life of women working at the Supreme Court from starting an aerobics exercise class early in the morning that she jiggles to almost every day at seven in the morning, to far more serious subjects. One of my favorite stories about Justice O'Connor involved one of the justices' conferences that they hold every week to discuss cases, and nobody else is present. And it is said that on this occasion, they were discussing an affirmative action case. And Justice Scalia, uh, went on at some length about his well-known view that affirmative action is an affront to a meritocracy. And he talked for some time, and when he finally wound down, Justice O'Connor is said to have leaned across the table and said to him, and Nino, how do you think I got my job? <laughs> Justice O'Connor is very much of a superwoman, she, uh, she had a mastectomy a few years ago. She scheduled it so she would miss no oral argument at the Supreme Court. So she was gone, I think, less than 10 days from the court. Was seen, I think, three weeks after the surgery, wincingly hitting overhead shots on the local tennis court. Uh, she keeps a schedule that would kill a horse. And at the end of every term, there are always rumors that she's not well. Uh, after her mastectomy, she had chemotherapy the entire year and wore a wig and looked very sick from time to time, but as far as I know, never missed a day on the bench. There are always rumors that she's not well. I think she's, as far as I know, she's fine. But she usually looks terrible at the end of the term. And the reason is, 
when you see the statistics at the end of the term, you understand why. She's the workhorse of this place. She produces huge numbers of opinions, usually more opinions than anybody else, long and complicated opinions. Um, and that's the reason she looks so exhausted at the end of the term. It's really quite that simple. Um, she has been engaged in a, for a public feud, pretty bitter feud with Justice Scalia over the last few years. Um, he's certainly the uh, most brilliant writer on the court. I wish I could use words as well as he does. I have enormous respect for him as a, as a writing craftsman. He is really, uh, there's nobody on this court who is anywhere near his equal. But he can be quite acerbic and personal in his remarks. So that in uh, the 1989 Webster abortion decision, for example, when Justice O'Connor denied the conservatives the fifth vote to reverse Roe, he accused her, in his concurring opinion, he accused her of writing an irrational opinion. She does not take kindly to those kinds of remarks. <laughs> and as far as I can tell, there has not been a major case that he's written opinion he's written since then that she's joined in full. Um, they fight out their battle in the footnotes. Most people don't read footnotes, but reporters who cover the Supreme Court read footnotes. And they are really fun <laughs> and fairly vicious. Um, a lot of us who knew Justice Scalia before he went on this court thought he would be more influential than he has, in fact, been. Um, that is because he is such a charming and funny and interesting and bright man. But as it has turned out, he would rather uh, go on his way alone and be true to his beliefs than to seek to build coalitions and consensus with other justices, to forge bridges to other justices. That's something that William Brennan did enormously well when he was on the court, often securing victories for liberals that were completely unanticipated. And it is certainly the, something that President Clinton is seeking in his nominee to the Supreme Court. He understands enough about the court to want that. But as his list has dwindled from time to time, I think that's become increasingly difficult for him uh, because, ironically, the fact that the Democrats have been out of power for so long has hurt his pool of talent. There are very few judges available to him from the Carter years who are young enough, who are not in their 60s. Um, there are almost no policymakers uh, because there has not been an administration in which to put those people. If this were two years from now, for example, it is not inconceivable to me at all that we might see Justice Janet Reno, but not now. Um, so his pool of talent is somewhat limited. He will put a lot of the people on, this, on the lower courts now who will be available to him in a year or two. We now think that Justice Blackman will not retire this term. He just last week hired his clerks for next term. And Bill Clinton must have breathed a sigh of relief because I don't think he had two ready. He'd rather put some people on the lower courts and have a bigger pool. Um, I know a great many of you wonder about Justice Thomas. There is really very little that I can tell you about him as a justice because he has isolated himself so much on the court. Um, he rarely asks questions at oral argument. Some have suggested, some like Professor Lawrence Tribe have suggested rather uncharitably that's because he's not able to. <laughs> Justice Thomas, Justice Thomas has said he, that most other justices asked the questions that he was going to ask and that's why he doesn't, he saves his till last. He has made a good, uh, a significant point out of letting it be known that uh, he does not read the newspapers. Um, whether, I'm not sure that I think that's a great asset for 
somebody sitting on the nation's highest court to not know what's going on in the country on a daily basis, but he apparently thinks that that insulates him from the passions of the day. Um, the people who know him tell two rather different stories, and candidly, I cannot tell you which one is accurate. Uh, some of his friends say he is adjusting to the workload, beginning to get used to it, um, enjoying himself enormously, very happy at the court. He, produces, he produced a significant number of opinions last term, uh, almost all of them very conservative, but his, the work he produced was very credible and um, significant in its volume. Uh, there is another school of his friends who say that he is miserable, that he's not up to the work, at least yet, that he's tormented by the battle surrounding his nomination, that he understands that some of his colleagues think he is not fully qualified for the job. Now, which of these two, as I said, is accurate? I have not a clue. I report them to you as your dutiful reporter, having heard them both from people who firmly believe and tell me with equal passion, I know this is true. Um, I don't know which is true. Uh, they told me not to speak much more than till 12.30, so I probably ought to quit while I'm ahead. But I did want to tell you one story, about not about the Supreme Court at all, but about something more topical, about Janet Reno. Um, I think she's the most, at least for now, I may eat these words, I think she's the most interesting political figure on the horizon whom I've seen in a hell of a long time. <laughs> and I mean this in uh, every sense as a professional compliment. She is the closest thing to a left-wing left Reagan I have seen in <laughs> 20 years. And by that, I mean that she is uh, such a firm and sure-footed communicator, such a natural politician, uh, such a natural person with people, that they do, the people do seem to relate to her, to have enormous confidence in her, in her integrity, in her word, in her, well, her good balance even though the things that she may do on a daily basis are things that they would not agree with. Um, I, I note, for example, that she has come out four square against mandatory minimum sentences. That is, these sentences that impose minimum sentences on criminals and say to judges, you can't sentence them to less than this. Minimum sentences, mandatory minimums, are one of the most popular things around the country. For a politician in any administration to say, I'm for giving judges more discretion and for letting people out of jail sooner when they're not violent. Um, just, I'm just for easier punishment for some criminals is a squishy thing to say. There hasn't been a beep about it because she puts it in a way that gets people to at least listen to her and they trust her. Now, she, the fact is that they trust her from the whole Waco experience, which by anybody's um, account cannot be viewed as a success. 86 people don't die and you call it a success. Still, one has to say that, you know, what goes up can come down just as fast, and she certainly is aware of that. I think she's having her struggles with the White House at the moment over naming people that she wants in office. On, on her team, as are all cabinet members. But I'm going to conclude by telling you a lovely story that I heard about her. The week that they decided to offer her the job, that the president decided to offer her the job, she was brought to Washington and they had her holed up in some hotel room where they would go in, you know, for hours at a time and ask her, ask her you know, when she last slept with an aunt. Um, and 
This went on for days until she says that occasionally she wanted to throw things at people. And finally, the job was offered and she accepted and there was a big meeting with all the White House staff. And uh, they said to her, they told her what was going to happen the next day and they said, now, Janet, tomorrow you're going to go out in the Rose Garden, with, the President's going to go out in the Rose Garden with you. He'll read a little statement, you'll read a little statement, the press will ask you questions, you won't answer them. <laughs> no substantive answers. And she said, why not? And they said, well, it's just not done. You answer before the Judiciary Committee. You don't answer before the press corps. That's what Zoe Baird did. She said, well, you know, I saw Zoe Baird do that, and I thought she looked pretty stupid. And she, then Janet Reno said, you know, I've been in public life for 15 years. People know I have positions. It's not like I haven't got positions. And they said to her, look, this is the way it's done. You're not going to answer any questions. That's it. And according to my informant, she shrugged. So the next day, they go out in the Rose Garden. The president reads his statement. She reads her statement. Ruth Marcus from the Washington Post raises her hand, and she says, uh, Ms. Reno, what's your position on abortion? And Janet Reno walked to the lectern, and she looked right at the guy who told her not to say anything, and she said, I'm pro-choice. <laughs> And my informant at the White House said, hmm, we had less than a nanosecond of control over our attorney general. <laughs> if anybody had any doubts, he said, about whether she was going to be independent, they were dispelled at that moment. So I think the, uh, the odds are sort of interesting, anyway, at the Justice Department. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And our guest today is Nina Totenberg, National Public Radio's legal affairs correspondent, who has been speaking on perspectives on the Supreme Court. And now, Ms. Totenberg, will you return to the podium, please? I'd like to begin with this question. How has the role of the media changed in your years in Washington? What have you experienced? Well, um, I am only 49, <laughs> so I don't go back to the 30s. Um, <laughs> there have been a couple of changes. Um, in fact, when I first came to Washington was just before Watergate. Watergate began unfolding a few years after that. And, but the Vietnam War was in full swing. And those two things have changed the press corps, I think, from one of, um, to some degree, of skeptical listener to hostile listener. I prefer to be a skeptical listener myself no matter who the president is, no matter who the senator is. I don't think the presumption should be that the politician is trying to do us wrong. And I think there are some reporters, maybe even a lot of reporters, and particularly younger reporters, who think that their position is one, more one of an adversary than a skeptic. So that's one difference. The second difference is that the press corps is humongous by comparison. When I first worked in Washington in 1968, I remember the um, day that uh, the Russians invaded Czechoslovakia. And Dean Rusk announced the invasion when he was testifying before the platform committee of the Democratic National Committee. And he rushed off to the White House. He was handed a note, and he rushed off to the White House for a meeting. And I followed. In those days, the entire White House press corps was housed in cubicles just off the Oval Office, which to give you an idea of how big an area might have been two of these panels of people seating, seated here. There were little 
carols of offices there. I don't imagine there were any broadcast booths right there. I'm not sure, but I don't think so. And every, and I was there sort of staking out the president and waiting, and every once in a while, President Johnson would come out and talk to us, and then at about midnight he came out and he said, boys, looking right at me, boys, <laughs> the lid's on, meaning we could all go home for the night, and we went home. Well, when President Nixon became president, they moved the press room across the way from the Oval Office so that you can't see who's going in and out necessarily, and um, it's big and it has broadcast facilities, and um, it's just very antiseptic. Now the Clinton administration has even walled off the press secretary from easy access. You can't just go back there. So that's another difference. It's huge. Uh, a third difference is that the respectable press, meaning most of us, public broadcasting, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the commercial networks, um, CNN if it had existed, that was all there was to the press that covered Washington in those days. Now you have a, a plethora of inside edition and what sort of the tabloid television press. And while they may not be there every day for the briefings, they write about it and do programs about it and it's on television and it has very high ratings and the only thing I can tell you is that people watch it. If nobody watched it, it wouldn't be there. Um, so that's a big difference. And then of course, lastly, the press when I came to Washington was almost exclusively all men and all white. And it is still mainly white, but it is no longer all male. It is very significantly female. Thank you. I have two questions about Anita Hill. One person asks, is the new book about her fair and honest? And the other person asks, following all of your investigative work, do you believe Anita Hill? Well, let me just answer the, the second question first. I have never answered that question in public, and I never plan to. Um, my job is as a reporter. I did my job as a reporter. I told you all the reasons you should believe her and the reasons you shouldn't believe her in terms of the facts known about her and her story. And the rest is up to you. Uh, as to the book, uh, The Real Anita Hill, uh, I've only scanned it, particularly the parts about, that have my name in it. <laughs> and I, I don't like to use uh, words like honest or fair or whatever those were. I will only tell you that there are some facts about it. Number one, in the pages that I looked at, there, the book was riddled with factual errors. That is, people's biographies were wrong. Uh, facts about me were just factually wrong. The account of how I got the Anita Hill story is wrong. Um, but there, are, I mean, there's no way that he could know that for sure. He surmised it. Um, he and I never talked. He had a researcher call me. I called back. He never called back. Um, but there are specific facts that are wrong, like he is critical of Anita Hill's polygraph because it wasn't done by a law enforcement organization or a law enforcement kind of person. But the person, in fact, who administered the polygraph had set up the polygraph unit at the FBI, was retired FBI. Um, there are just, you know, and who, uh, what years somebody worked for somebody or other, it's just, there's stuff in it that's just wrong. Um, the second thing is, of course, that the book is underwritten by the conservative Olin Foundation. Um, the writer is, as far as I know, has not any experience as a reporter. He might, but what I've seen of his credentials, he was an editorial writer for the Washington Times, and wrote pieces for the Spectator magazine, which is a conservative commentary kind of magazine. So those are the facts. You make your own conclusions. Thank you. This person asks, law is effective only insofar as it represents the consensus of the populace. Does the court and decisions that it makes now represent that consensus? Um, I don't think that the court ever represents a consensus of the populace. It's always doing, doing some things that are unpopular, either unpopular conservative or unpopular liberal. People used to ask me in the days of the more liberal court, 
um, do you think the court should be so activist? And I always knew that that meant they didn't like the decisions of the court. Now liberals say, do you think the court should be so activist? And I know, once again, that this person doesn't like the decisions of the court. Um, I think that by and large, justices are, they don't like to go wildly out of the mainstream of public thought but they're willing to do so on some occasions and witness Brown versus the Board of Education, which was certainly um, an earthquake of a legal decision. Uh, and I've seen many, many demonstrations at the Supreme Court with tens of thousands of people at them. And I have never thought that any one of those demonstrations had the slightest effect on any member of the Supreme Court. So I think there is, um, you know, uh, justices are human beings. They are not unaffected by opprobrium. On the other hand, I think they are aware that there is a reason that they are the least accountable branch of government, why they're not electable, why they have life terms and can be removed only for high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, and um, by and large, they stick to that duty. Thank you. This person asks, could you comment on Justice David Souter's record on the court so far? Justice Souter has been a really interesting member of the court. Um, he is certainly less conservative than his sponsors and President Bush might have anticipated. Um, he was picked, I think it's fair to say, uh, by John Sununu. John Sununu had been governor of New Hampshire, had named David Souter to the Supreme Court of New Hampshire, and John Sununu's not a lawyer, and with perhaps some hubris, thought he knew better than some of the conservative bastions who had advised uh, President Bush. He, he thought he knew that David Souter would be uh, as conservative as uh, Justice Scalia, for example. And he was wrong. And anybody who looked at the Souter record could have foreseen that he would be wrong. And the conservative groups who were internally yelling at President Bush at the time knew then or feared then that he was wrong. He is a conservative judge, but he's of the whittle away the brick variety. And he's a, he's a Yankee. Uh, you know, he's a New England type of individualistic uh, conservative, which is somewhat different from a more authoritarian type of conservative. Um, he started out uh, having concluded his confirmation hearings in the fall and not having been prepared for the first term, and I think was really at sea in his first term on the court. Um, he, after all, had almost no experience with federal constitutional or statutory law. He'd served on state courts in New Hampshire. He, New Hampshire is not a typical state. It has less than a 1% minority population. Uh, its largest city is Manchester with 100,000 people. It is not a typical American state. And so he about drowned that first term, as I think he would be the first to tell you. But in the second term, he had the summer to prepare to think about the cases that were coming before the court. And he has begun to be a very influential justice right at the dead center of the court. As he goes frequently and usually, that's the way the court goes. Um, and he's beginning to have some exposure to things that he didn't have in, in New Hampshire. One story I heard about him recently was he had been to a, um, a screening of a movie called Separate But Equal few years ago, this is two or three years ago, which was about Brown versus the Board of Education. And it was put on at the Kennedy Center and Thurgood Marshall was there. And it was a very moving movie. And on the way home, he took somebody home and he turned to this person and he said, you know, I had never realized what segregation was like. This is the first time I've really understood it. He'd been sitting there in almost all white New Hampshire. Um, he's young enough in his early 50s that uh, segregation, the battle over segregation had just never really reached him. 
And this movie was the first time he'd seen it in flesh and blood terms. And I imagine there are other things he's seeing for the first time in flesh and blood terms. Thank you. This person asks, what is your reading on how many Supreme Court appointments Clinton is likely to have in this four years, given the present justice's health, interest in continuing, etc.? Two for sure. I mean, after all, Justice Blackmun is 84. Two for sure. And um, conceivably, one or two others. Uh, it's not beyond the pale that Justice O'Connor would retire or that uh, Justice Stevens, who's 73 and increasingly spends his time in Florida, uh, he works from Florida, um, where he has a condominium. Uh, it's, not, it's not inconceivable that he would just decide that he wants to not work that hard. Um, there's been some talk about the Chief Justice retiring. I would doubt very much that would happen in a first Clinton term. I think he would wait increasingly with the expectation that there might be a Republican in office in 1996. Thank you. This person asks, given your remarks, can we conclude that Marion Wright Edelman is not a possible nominee? She is, this person says, perhaps too controversial, a woman, black, liberal, too close to Hillary. Marion Wright Edelman, as far as I can tell, is not a, nom a potential nominee because she has said publicly and recently that she does, does not want to be on the court. Thank you. What do you feel C-SPAN's impact will be on international news coverage in the years ahead? C-SPAN? On international news coverage? C-SPAN? <laughs> I have, first of all, I have a confession to make. I don't have cable. But I see C-SPAN enough, and I don't think I've ever seen anything that's international except for a Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing. Uh, it's, maybe you're, you're questioning means CNN. Um, and the question was? <laughs> what impact will it have? On? Let's say national news coverage. Well, um, CNN on international news coverage, it's obviously forced um, the commercial networks to continue to cover a lot of things that they might not have otherwise, and they are now trying to figure out ways to pool their resources, because for television to cover international stories is incredibly expensive. And to have four networks competing all the time for footage is, um, perhaps maximizes what kind of footage you get, but um, is a somewhat of a duplication of effort. And so you see that, for example, ABC just made a deal with the BBC to share everything. Um, and I think we'll see more and more of these kinds of pooling of resources. Thank you. This person asks, who is the most ethical leader you have observed in government and why? The most ethical leader. I've observed in government. Well, um, there are actually lots of people in Washington with ethics, as hard as that may be to believe. <laughs> uh, but the people who stand out as having ethics are by and large the special prosecutors and, and the judges who stand up in very visible circumstances, people like Archibald Cox, for example, or, um, to, I mean, I'm hearkening back to an era that is less fraught with emotion than we might have if I were to pick, for example, Lawrence Walsh. Um, but people like Archibald Cox and John Sirica, uh, people like that. But that is not to say that there haven't been people in, in the Congress who are very ethical people, and they, and they in fact, do exist. Now, I should tell you my bias here. I'm married to a former United States senator who <laughs> once even turned down an offer of seats at the Kennedy Center in the White House box with the notion that that might indebt him to the president to have to vote on some, some way for the president. So, but there are people who do that and do that frequently. Thank you. 
I'd like to conclude with this question. David Cameron, who's a student at the Breck School, asks, how do you think the Supreme Court will change this country in the near future? It's always the easy question that they end up with. Um, well, I think you've already seen the court defuse the abortion issue uh, by upholding Roe, and it is not going to change. I say that with some certainty. Of course, I forecast two years ago that Roe versus Wade would be reversed, so you have to take this with a grain of salt. But I think it is now quite certain that Roe, by and large, will remain the law of the land. So abortion you're already seeing fading as a national issue. Uh, you can see it in all kinds of ways. It is no longer a big issue in, in congressional elections and in, in, in federal elections of any kind. Um, the contributions to pro-choice groups are way down. So that's one big thing that's happened already. Um, if Clinton gets more than two choices to name a justice, if he does more than replace justices white and blackmen, he will, I think, significantly change the balance of the court. It will become a much more centrist court and less conservative. And the court will be more as it was five or six years ago, instead of leaning almost inexorably and always to the right. It, the question always is now, to how far to the right? Uh, and, but that's not the kind of thing that my crystal ball tells me. I do think that the court will by and large fade um, for the time being as a huge and controversial uh, decision maker simply because a great many of the most controversial things it's done, or had the potential for doing, it didn't do. It, uh, last term, it did not allow prayer at high school graduations. Um, and I doubt that there will be the votes to reverse that and to allow spoken prayer in public schools. So in a lot of these, busing has faded by and large as a big issue that comes to the court. And the, the ball game is now really in the legislature and the presidency. And the electorate is going to have to make its views known and decide how it wants to do things. But inexorably, sometime in the next 10 years or so, the court will again come back into focus as other issues become paramount that we can't even envision now. When FDR named nine members of the Supreme Court eventually, all he cared about was naming people who would uphold his New Deal program. And they did that. They agreed on that. But other issues eventually came to the fore. School desegregation, saluting the flag, all kinds of issues that he never in a million years imagined. And we will have those issues too, but I'm, a, I'm afraid to tell you that I'm not enough of a soothsayer to tell you what those are going to be. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ms. Totenberg.